You're listening to No Name Podcast International, our special series to support Ukraine and promote awareness about the war. These episodes are streamed live on Twitch, with recording available later on YouTube as well as your favorite podcast player. For donations, please use the links in the description. Today we're having an extremely insightful conversation with Katie Musuris, and also an unexpected guest, her cat Scappy. The views and advices Katie shared with us on vulnerability management and bug bounty programs are available both for businesses and governments. We'll do our best to ensure these are heard by Ukrainian policymakers, and we sure hope you find them interesting too. Welcome back to Nalini Podcast International. In uh, this series, we talk to cybersecurity experts all over the world to discuss cyber domain of the war, uh, make new connections for Ukrainian information security community, and uh, learn from colleagues abroad. Uh, today, we have Katie Musuris, uh, who is currently CEO and founder of Lutra Security. And Katie has spent more than 20 years in the industry professionally, and I guess less professionally before that. Her work included um, multiple industry-leading initiatives, starting with Microsoft Vulnerability Research, launching Microsoft's first bug bounty program, co-authoring international standards on vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling processes, which is just amazing if you just think about it, that we have a standard for that. And she also worked with U.S. Department of Defense, where she led the launch of the very first U.S. government bug bounty program, Hack the Pentagon, allowing hackers to legally probe security of governmental computer networks, which is crazy, especially if it's U.S. government. <laughs> and uh, Katie also supports a number of social causes of gender and economic equity through uh, her foundation, Pay Equity Now. If there is anything else to add, Katie, like feel free. Uh, but Katie, welcome, and we're excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The only thing I'm going to add is that Scappy the Cat, who I've warned you, is going to join us. He's trying to close my laptop right now. He's he's literally he's rubbing his face on it. So if the camera goes like this, it's because I'm holding it because he's trying to he's trying to sabotage this recording. I'm just telling you right Vlad, now. Vlad, I think we need to add another threat to uh, you know critical infrastructure threats. Uh, that we yeah, have the threat model will be updated <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Katie, the first question I I'm like forced to ask: How did you come up with such a cool name for the cat <laughs> well okay so scappy is scappy my cat is about 17 years old scappy the python fuzzer is about 18 or 19 years old and you know it's in the category of fuzzers called dumb fuzzers and this is a dumb fuzzy cat so you know the name was natural he also <laughs> finds a lot of bugs he hunts bugs you know this is it's, it was a natural name and I'm petting him over here because I'm trying to distract him, but he is very disruptive, exactly like a dumb fuzzer. So this is perfect name for this. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Okay. That's nice. That's really nice. Well, Thank you for the explanation because yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan of a tool. Now I'm also a big fan of a cat. Yep. I need, speaking, I, speaking so I get, oh, go ahead. No, I get Scappy stickers every time I see the, the the makers of Scappy at conferences, and I bring them back for the cat. He doesn't understand; it's for him. You know, this is these are your stickers. <laughs> anyway, I'm pretty sure he thinks you're chatting with him right now. So he's like, "Oh, I'm you know, I, I'm in the middle of attention." So <laughs> he is. He's getting attention. Um, but he's speaking literally of disruptive things. He's holding me hostage. Is what's happening. I call him my supervisor. <laughs> My supervisor. <laughs> like yeah, like any cat. Uh, my parents had a cat for almost twenty years, so yeah, <laughs> definitely familiar feeling. Uh, I was gonna say, speaking of disruptive things, right? There, there is part of your career I didn't mention, but basically, I think everyone either knows it or if not, they will they will Google it and, and find out. But I guess I wanted to ask, what do you think are the main challenges? Uh, basically, difference between infosec challenges. Uh, between the times you were at stake and and now are there any differences are there any like did something fundamentally change or this is similar this, uh, uh, fairly similar and if if not then you know what do you think is the biggest change well so first i mean it was it was a great time to be joining the infosec you know career trajectory back in the early 2000s with at stake 
you know, it's formed by my friends from the loft um, who I had known since the late 80s, early 90s. So it was really cool to work with each other, especially when we were all young. Um, so what has changed? One, we're not young anymore. Um, but with that experience, you know, we've noticed patterns, you know, emerging in, in our industry. We've also noticed, you know, some things remain the same, right? Attack surface reduction is still one of the best ways to deal with any kind of emerging threat. It doesn't matter whether it was 20 years ago or today. We're always telling people to reduce, reduce their attack surface. And um, I would also say that, you know, a lot more people uh, and a lot more organizations are open to working with hackers today than they were back then. Back then you had to be a professional penetration tester, which, you know, us in our 20s, I can't imagine how much more unprofessional we could possibly have been as, as, as hackers. But back then, you know, the banks wouldn't hire you unless you came from a company. Now organizations are open to individual hackers reporting bugs. Sometimes they pay them, sometimes they don't. But you know, just the openness has changed. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and that's through the work of many, many people, you know, not just myself advocating for vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs, but it's, it's been, you know, sort of a shift over the last decade or so. Um, organizations realizing that they can't, they can't secure everything by doing a checklist. They do need some hackers to tell them the truth. And we're here to tell them the truth. So that much has not changed. Awesome. So I, I just guess, would it be correct if I may, also go ahead. I, I just wanted to add that uh, if you want to learn more about this fundamental era <laughs> in the hacking history and uh, the uh, all the precursors to the current state of infosec industry that Katie just elegantly scratched on the surface, there is a book by Joseph Mann. It's available in Ukrainian now. It's Cult of the Dead Cow. So just get it and uh, read about it in the in full detail not not full as detail but you will certainly get a thing or two from the book thanks yeah i know that Which, book is... to my embarrassment i sorry go ahead i was going to say that book is great and joe man is is a good friend of mine and i'm glad that he he chronicled and captured some of that history you know it was it's a lot of stories in that book about you know a simpler time of hacking and i think um a lot of the same spirit of hacking is still alive today well we're still alive right so there there's that but <laughs> for now um but it's also I, I think the book really goes into some of the fundamental like ethical questions that we had to yeah. wrestle with right you hold so much power and as everything becomes more digitized and everything and everything becomes more connected the the more hackers power in society actually grew and deciding what to do with that knowledge, what to do with the bugs that you found. I mean, these were kind of existential questions. It was like Frodo and Lord of the Rings trying to hand Galadriel the ring. And she's like, I could become this evil and terrible, you know, beautiful and terrible as the dawn, or I can hand back the, the ring of power. And this is the question we wrestle with every single time we find a bug is, what am I going to do with this bug? Um, and I think that book really dives into some of that early you know, wrestling with how do we how do we function knowing that what we can do and also with people not really listening to us, you know, at the time. And what are, you know, what are the warnings we want to get out there and what good can we do with our with our skills, with our powers? So I think people are always wrestling with what can we do with our our time on earth, right? And um, I don't know, the book is a lot more to me anyway, and maybe it's because of, it's about me and my friends you know, that I feel very much like it's such a great illustration of not just the time, but the ethical choices that we make, you know, with technology. Yeah, and that's going to distract me and like to, to my, my embarrassment. <laughs> okay, so, go ahead. I, I just I just wanted to add maybe, as, as you mentioned, Ruslan uh, Kitty is the co-author of uh, International Standards for Vulnerability Disclosure. I just wanted to thank you exclusively for that because we took it as a basis for our national, um, like, I don't know, formalization of uh, bug bounty processes in, uh, in the government. And I'm like a member of a task group that uh, was uh, took this assignment. So yeah, it's a very well designed document the second edition, at least, I, I didn't, I didn't catch up with the first one, but the uh, fresh one, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of, kind of cool. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you most probably 
recognize in full the momentum that you gave to this industry because just imagine how easy it is for me to convince my ideological and uh, bureaucratic opponents all around the corners of the government uh, when I argue from the pedestal of an international standard, you know, mm -hmm. right? So all your work that you have uh, done, all the experience that you have accumulated and then put into the document, it now bears fruit. And it's much more, much, much easier for, for the people who come after you to do the same job in other places. That's a, that's really good to hear. And, you know, it was, the document was the work of many people over many, many years. And I was lucky that I was at a place, you know, that supported my work there because to be an editor of international standards, you effectively have to work for a company that's a member of the international body to even have a seat at the table. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of weird stuff about me taking a job at Microsoft when I did. I mean, I had been a Linux developer I wasn't, you know, I didn't really hack on, on Microsoft. I hacked on Linux and stuff. And so me taking a job there, I knew what I wanted to do was try to move the biggest software company in the world. If you can move that brick of a company, even one inch, the whole world gets to move with it. And so I was just really lucky that I was there at the time. And I thought it was going to be short. I thought I was going to go in, make some red line changes, fix up their crappy document and leave. But it took like nine years of my life, I'm not kidding you, to like <laughs> finalize the, those versions and everything. And, you know, a lot changed in my life in that span of time. But I think what stayed the same was that, you know, like, like you and, and a lot of people, they just needed something that was blessed by the international community of experts and standard makers to make it okay for them to do it in their organization. Because otherwise it was just too scary it was like, I think a lot of people were like, you know, invite hackers to hack us. What are you crazy? You know, and it's like, hackers are already hacking you. You're just inviting the friendly ones, you know, and everything. So having the standard to legitimize it, I think that that really resonates with a lot of people. So thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. Thank you. Yeah. You just start to listen to them instead of dismissing them and, and you know, ignoring uh... But yeah, I, I was just going to say that to my embarrassment, I just read the book uh, last night on the flight from New York. Um, but what <laughs> struck me the most is that, uh, <laughs> yeah, Vlad is like, what? How, do, you, how do I know this guy? <laughs> Finally, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, better late than never. Congrats. Better late than never. To, uh, yeah, to my, uh, you know, uh, excuse, I, uh, I work more on like uh, software engineering versus like traditional security or pen test and something like that. So I always put that as, a, as an excuse. But anyway, what struck me the, the most is that uh, your generation kind of hit that period uniquely, which no generation will ever do again, where you were kind of, if not ahead, but with the technology developing. Because if you come to the field now, right, it, so much has happened, so much is happening right now, you kind of kitchen up, you feel this, you know, um, feeling of missing out, if anything, right? But uh, back then, there was nothing essentially, right? There, there was just a little bit of technology developing, connectivity wasn't there. And so to me, it also seems like the thing that changed the most since, you know, back to the original question, uh, the communication between, between people, between companies and, and hackers, uh, and generally the, between the industry and other, um, other fields. So it's just amazing to see this progress being done. And I can't even imagine how amazing it is to be, you know, the, the witness of that uh, for you to be following it for, uh, for all this time. So that's amazing. Uh, but now as we touched uh, the topic of, uh, you know, uh, vulnerabilities and, and standards, we'll also want to move to questions about, I guess, focus more on your work with, with governments. Because uh, as you know, right now, Ukraine is a, a state of war. And during this time, all the threats, all the issues that may be happening in cyber, uh, cyber realm, kind of multiplied, I don't know, 10, 100,000 times. Um, so I guess we could start with, is there any advice you could give on what to focus the most on, you know, to boost up security of critical businesses and state infrastructure, how to, how to work with the government on this as well? I think, well, first of all, you know, what's happening in Ukraine is 
is beyond imagination, beyond nightmares. And I'm so, so sorry for what's happening there. It's uh, for in terms of your question about cybersecurity, I think, you know, all organizations, all governments, critical infrastructure need to work on things that that unfortunately they are the basics, but they are not basic to implement. Right. You need resources. You need people who understand how your systems work in order to secure the most critical of your assets. No organization is going to be perfectly secure at all times. It's really a matter of maintenance, asset management, a lot of really boring stuff, honestly. You know, this is the boring stuff, but it's it's kind of like preventing cavities by brushing and flossing every day. You know, it's the dental hygiene of security that people, you know, it's boring, but you need skilled workers to do it. So I think you know, maintaining um, patch levels is boring, but it's absolutely necessary. Having people who can run scans against your network, whether they're people that you have internally or people you hire or strangers on the internet that you invite, um, just to let you know where you've missed something. I mean, those are some things that, that organizations usually start with nothing. Even governments can start with nothing, you know, no people to, to deal with security. They're just dealing with keeping the systems up and running. And this is actually true in the United States as well. It's not unique to Ukraine. It's not unique to any country where you have things like gas pipelines and uh, other critical infrastructure where you probably have one IT person and they're not a security person. So we have a workforce shortage. But we also have this problem. I think you were touching on it earlier. You, you made me think about it when you said, my generation grew up when there was nothing, like we were growing up with the technology, you know, as it was being put in place. And there's so much to learn. Well, there's so many new people that don't get an opportunity because most cybersecurity jobs say you need to have 10 years of experience. How do you get that experience if you can never get that job? And then we have organizations, critical infrastructure and governments that need workers and can't hire them, right? So we have this gap. We have a cyber workforce gap. And what I think is that we need to get more creative and go back to actually how we got these jobs. How did we get these jobs? There were no jobs, right? We had to create them. We had to create these roles. I think there's room for governments, critical infrastructure to have their one IT person take on more and more cybersecurity responsibilities, but also bringing in less experienced people and having them learn in the job. This is kind of what we had to do in the first place, right? And, and we invented this field while we were doing it. It was like building the railroad, you know, putting the tracks of the railroad right before the train that you're running really, really fast. This is where we are right now. So maybe it's a convoluted answer to your question, but it's about, you know, it's about maintaining cybersecurity hygiene, trying to get more workers in and building a pipeline of workers so that new workers can gain experience looking over the shoulders of the keyboard, you know, of the older workers with more experience. And I think we need to, I think we need to challenge ourselves to find less traditional pathways because I didn't go to college for this. Nobody I know who, who does this, you know, really for a living did it through formal education. There's more formal education now in cyber than ever. I don't see anybody coming out with a master's of information security and being able to take on you know, a nation state threat. I see hackers like me who figured it out um, starting to build tools and build protection. And, um, and I think the spirit of that needs to continue. And uh, the, the, training, the training that you just uh, touched, briefly does it really work because just in terms of organizational development there are two ways to transfer knowledge right you can either go to a training get certified pass the test all this kind of usual stuff and then put it on your resume and with this cv you will be more or less uh, more or less capable to get a job yeah so you just pass the pass the firewall pass the mm -hmm. hr filter as we call mm -hmm. it right but you will never get the tacit knowledge this way, this looking over the shoulder, it will not come to you uh, without experience. You can be a lone wolf and, I don't know, hunt bucks or whatever, but or do some very deep and specific kind of research, like go down to some very specific thing and do it, be the best in the world in it, right? 
but these kind of people are not uh, capable to take uh, responsibility for for i don't know government security for instance right so what you're saying may can it can it be summed up with something like uh, just lower the bar and put some people bring some people in take take them on the crew and uh, just just try to try to build something with these uh, resources well i mean that's honestly that's what i've found does work right we mm-hmm. take more experienced people and this was true even back at at stake you would have you know a senior pen- penetration testers we would go on an engagement and we would bring the junior pen testers with us right so they would do some things but we would teach them more you know either more hacking skills more techniques but more customer facing skills and things mm-hmm. like how do you, you know, how do you write a report so that you can communicate the risk so that the organization actually takes action? Like that's as important as doing the hacking in a lot of cases. You can hack yourself, you know, all the way through uh, government's internal infrastructure, but if you can't articulate what it is that you did and what they need to do to secure it, you've you've basically just, you know, taken a will, selfie of hacking. That's be it. No change, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it has worked. And something else, you know, my company does uh, cybersecurity specifically around vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty internal handling procedures. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that there aren't that many people who know how to do that process, right? It's like, it's, I call it sort of the security 1%, these organizations that have huge cybersecurity teams and budgets and different specializations within their cybersecurity team, that's a tiny fraction of the world. You know, it's it's a few major companies and it's zero governments. No governments have the cyber capabilities right now, um, you know, in terms of organized defense as let's say Microsoft, Apple, Google, those are among like what I would call the companies that basically had to build this over the last 20 or so years. So. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is the ability to train people depends on you having sort of enough organizational experts, but also organizational room to bring in junior people. And you have to deliberately make room for them because no, you can't put a junior person on a critical task and leave them alone. You need a senior person with them. They they need to be shadowing the senior person for at Mm -hmm. least some period of time. And we do that a lot actually with the skills that we teach because hardly any organizations have these people already. So you can't hire them. You can't hire them already ready to do this job. You have to teach them how. And we teach people how to do vulnerability disclosure inside an organization. We teach them how to digest the bugs that are being fed into them <laughs> through bug bounty programs and everything. And that's that's a learned skill. Yeah, I guess uh, the the... You could learn it in school, I guess, if the programs were mature enough, uh, but still you need some experience at least. And uh, also a lot of cybersecurity programs are not, I would say not that mature. Like they don't really teach that stuff uh, very efficiently. Um, And uh, yeah, in my mind, this form of apprenticeship always has been the most effective one. So I'm a little bit disappointed that very few companies actually invest in doing that. I know Vlad's Vlad's, uh, company does. Obviously, top security companies do, but other than that, uh, it, it's harder to get, uh, I would say, to get exposure to people willing to to teach you or rather the companies willing to invest in people. Oh, uh, so we definitely want to encourage that as well. It, it's a very, it's a very uh, simple idea that takes time to understand on the organizational and cultural level. So experts breed by binary fission. Okay, you take one, you attach a a mentee to him or her. It takes some time, yeah. So there is some doubling time, and you just you just breed them like bacteria, right? So so after (laughs) some time, you get two experts. Okay, so it just works like that. And the the point in time that like the uh, moment when uh, organizational manager who is tasked with this kind of work gets it. From there, it goes more or less smoothly. You just do not attach too many mentees to an expert, right? Because each mentee requires about 20 to 30% of time just, just for tasking, controlling, supervision, all this kind of stuff. 
right? So you cannot attach two for an expert, two mantis to an expert for, for, for an expert to, uh, to stay efficient. So it works like that. Maybe it depends on the body of knowledge, but in security, it's, it's more or less like that. So yeah, so I completely agree. This is something that works. It's slow. It has huge doubling time, but it has it. And when it's reached, you have two experts. Mm -hmm. Job done. Yeah, and I think uh, um, more governments, more organizations need that pipeline. I mean, my own government, my own government is having trouble hiring enough cybersecurity workers, and they're trying to, you know, do these other creative programs to train people who are already in the government. That's another big thing: is that you need to be able to train the people that you already have, and and you know, encourage them and give them the room in their job role to take on new responsibilities. And I would say that, you know, if if someone is sitting in an organization and they are the lonely one IT person or very small team, this is an area where, you know, if they want to branch out into cybersecurity, it's a perfect opportunity to just raise their hand and say, no one's doing this here. I would like to try it. I would like to install, you know, um, these systems for, for sensing attacks, I would like to do threat hunting, you know, um, whatever it is, but I, I think that organizations need to make room for it and make room for their existing people to take on more and more cybersecurity roles and provide um, training opportunities and job opportunities for them. I'm also very interested to learn about your experience, if, if you had something similar, so I, I'll describe this scene right now, um, but basically I think U.S. government is a little bit different in said that it's very, you know, very established. I guess if we compare it to Ukraine, Ukraine would be maybe like 1800s, uh, you, you know, U.S. government, like 25, 30 years after after revolution. Um, and uh, so the government, you know, they they develop right now, so they're a little bit different. So Ukrainian government sometimes is actually trying to, you know, go ahead. Uh, ahead of the time and uh, and maybe get a little bit too hypey and they do introduce some very modern features i would say right so i'm not sure if you heard about dia which is an app in ukraine where you can do a lot of things uh basically it's like a lot of government services put in a in a mobile app um you can even put your id in there and just you know present it from your phone and the the law enforcement can verify it uh, without having to carry the card or or the paper with you and stuff like that. Um, we had a lot of discussions about it in, on this podcast as well regarding like concerns about privacy um, and uh, all of that good stuff. And we also did have a huge leak of data, of course, uh, after a while uh, from that app. But nonetheless, it's there and a lot of Ukrainians do use it. Uh, and so uh, shortly before, maybe during... We al allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly had a few... <laughs> Right. But they did have a bug bounty program, though I guess Vlad can speak more to this. Initially, it was very... They still have it. No. Oh, they still have it. But initially, yeah. I, as I remember, things like API was out of scope, right? So it's, it was very unprepared um, unprepared bug bounty program. Uh, oh, that's, so... uh, I, I can elaborate on that. So I wouldn't say that it just had API out of scope. It was formally out of scope, but they added it to scope uh, within, I don't know, first two hours of the program, you know? So they were they were doing it without much preparation, but they had some support stuff online at all times to be ready to approve changes to the program. And they run it on the background. So it was very well coordinated. So they did it um, they, as they do everything, you know, it's, it's like a uh, reckless startup mode, <laughs> you know, so they, they are, they, are uh, they, they have less, con fewer constraints, they are much more flexible, and this is how they basically succeed, yeah, so because they, they reach their goals, you know, in the end, they create stuff that works, maybe it's not super secure, but no one has proven uh, otherwise, like, this, that point yeah so uh it, it it kind of works and the bug bounty is still active it has some reports it doesn't have uh, p1s i guess yet still surprisingly so at least some indicators confirm that <laughs> that might be a more or less secure application 
There was no well, uh, huge low-hanging fruit. But basically, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but basically where I was leading is my understanding that in your work, AT, right, you had to uh, work more against like this huge machine and try to drive it for, uh, forward uh, versus in Ukraine, sometimes they're happy to jump forward. It's just they kind of, uh, you know, need a little bit of guidance and they yeah. didn't ask for it. So uh, there are some issues along the way. Uh, but yeah, but please tell me like what your experience was there. Was it how, different? How, how did it do is that? How I described? Is, is, is there a silver bullet to it? Is it a combination of your skills or because it still it still sounds amazing, you know? There is a person who first did it in Microsoft and then did it for DOD. It's like fantastic. Well, I mean, honestly, all of it was slow like a glacier, and not like slow like a glacier melting right now, because it's happening really fast, like slow like a glacier moving, right? Mm -hmm. It was. Um, it was it was like three years of conversations from the time that I was at Microsoft to the time we launched Hack the Pentagon, you know, so mm -hmm. it took a very long time. And every time I was in D.C., I would always say to my friends, you know, in various government agencies, say, hey, you know, I'm going to be in D.C. for this reason. Do you want to meet up? And every time there were more questions, more exploration of the idea. And then suddenly when the U.S. government decided to do it. I actually, it had advised them, don't do a bug bounty first. That's crazy. Do a vulnerability disclosure program first, because you have no idea, you know, what you're going to, what you're going to encounter and everything. And they mm -hmm. said, yeah, but, you know, we really want to embrace the, the, the future and the future is bug bounty. And so they went straight to a bug bounty and you actually see them still kind of struggling to get out of that, almost the pilot mode of bug bounty. Mm -hmm. Um, because that was how they started everything. But anyway, the I think what you were asking is about that app and you know whether or not it, it seems like doing a bug bounty is is a good way to secure that app. I would say that you know it is one of the good ways. But the other ways, and I hope that this has been done also, is to hire professional pen testers. The reason is the coverage that you get from bug bounties is different from what you get from professional pen testers. Um, professional pen testers do have, you know, a methodology, not that bug bounty hunters don't, but they have a methodology that's oriented around coverage, as opposed to bug bounty hunters that are oriented around coverage that is likely to get them a reward, right? That mm -hmm. is a different, that's a different thing. And there may be a lot of lower severity bugs that won't be as interesting to a bug bounty hunter, but strung together might be a lot more interesting, you know, and, and would take some more time from a skilled professional pen tester. So hopefully you're having a combination of these things happening and good code reviewers reviewing the architecture. One reason I would say not to rely on the bug bounty is that when you said it was a mobile application, right? It's mobile app, is that right? Yeah, it's, like it's, yeah. it's basically a mobile app and uh, yeah. an API that is gateway to a bunch of registries and other public, uh, public services that the government uh, puts out. Right, so the mobile app component of it, and even the APIs, those are a little bit outside the skill set of a typical bug bounty hunter. Typical bug mm -hmm. bounty hunters are much more commonly skilled in web app pen test techniques. It's you know it's it's a lot faster, lower bar barrier to entry to find good bugs in in web, and so a lot of bug bounty hunters naturally have really only skilled up in that area. So what we find is that there are very few people with the kind of skills um, just kind of randomly out there doing bug bounty. Why? Mm -hmm. Because if they already have those skills, they're probably getting paid for them and they don't need to gamble with their time and those skills doing, doing a bug bounty. Because a bug bounty, you know, as you know, only the first person who comes in with a bug gets paid. So you might find the same bug as someone else, do the same work, but you get nothing and they get everything. Um, and the other thing is that it takes a while, right? And you don't know how much you're going to get paid. And sometimes the organization doesn't understand the bug and you have to take a lot of time explaining it to them, maybe even creating proof of concept over and over. It's a lot of work. It's not just the bug report. So what we try to do is we actually, when we spot a researcher in a bug bounty program that we help manage, we spot a researcher with a talent that's outside the normal bug bounty hunter skill set. We usually offer them a penetration testing contract. And the reason for doing that, it's like, why do that if they're already bug bounty hunting for you? Why not just pay for individual bugs? Because they probably have higher skills 
ability to write tools, ability to find bugs in a more efficient way. And it's actually win-win. The organization still gets that person's bugs. That person gets paid a guaranteed amount for a guaranteed amount of work. And everybody is a lot happier. So it's not it's not just bug bounty that you should be looking at, but some of these other complementary models. And in the fact of the matter is understanding the skills of who, who responds to a bug bounty versus who responds to a professional penetration test, that's gonna be important for getting good coverage. That was very insightful. Also, I was super surprised to hear, uh, just like I was su super surprised to hear that even the US government wanted to jump into uh, bug bounty program because I thought that they would try to push it away as, as hard as they can, uh, but I guess uh, all governments are alike. So sometimes mm -hmm. they wanna they wanna get on hype and and do that quickly. Uh, sorry, it, go it, ahead, it, Alex. It, it took Katie three years for them to get that, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I have a follow up question about like this coverage, right? So how to estimate the coverage here, right? That you did enough penetration testing on bug bounties. Because like this de-application, it's kind of, you know, uh, very disruptive features, like, you know, very rapid digitalization that Ukraine is doing. So it's like new services. Uh, so it's like a ratio or, or, you know, coverage that you need to achieve is, um, should be much greater or any kind of, you know, like rules of sum that you have for it. So what was the question the, exactly? Uh, yes, yeah, so basically how to estimate that you have enough uh, bounties and enough penetration testing done for, for uh, such, okay. you know, like a, so how do you estimate essentially how do you estimate that you've you've done enough from a security mm -hmm. assurance standpoint okay so that's a hard one to measure um honestly it's almost a philosophical measurement and i'm going to explain why right so all software is going to have bugs no matter how much you try to find all of them you're never going to find all of them if, if it's of a certain size and complexity you're not going to find all the bugs so the best way to measure did I do enough coverage is one to see what are what are the numbers of bug collisions, as in the same bug being found by multiple bug hunters. That indicates uh -huh. sort of a level of maturity, right? Because if let's say a ton of bug bounty hunters come in with the same bug report, that means it's easily discoverable. That means you should have found it yourself. That means you missed a step in terms of your own internal security. And then what you can do in the future is you can actually measure over time. What you wanna see is fewer and fewer bugs being shaken out of your code by whoever is finding it, whether it's penetration testers or bug bounty hunters or both. Fewer and fewer bugs, but less severe and more complex, right? You don't want the simple bugs and a whole lot of them. That indicates that you, you missed a lot of steps in your security development lifecycle and you need to, you know, train your developers more, run your own tests, like that kind of thing. Um, so maybe it's not exactly an answer to your question of when do you know how much you've done is enough? It's more of an evolution. You're taking your temperature at different baselines and you're trying to improve against yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have like, you know, the second part of the question, let me try to rephrase, right? So in terms of this, um, you know, state infrastructure, right, and such, you know, very sensitive applications, right, which has access to lots of data, do you raise the bar, right, in terms of like how much testing you're doing, or like uh, should like these governments like raise the bar? Okay, we need to invest much more than you know business doing. So first of all, Scappy, Scappy has been guest. I told you, I told you he was gonna come. He is here. He is here. So um, you know, I would say that look, there, there's, there's a, an initial investment in trying to write the code securely in the first place. And there's a lot of things you can do of bringing in experts while you're still designing the code, you're designing the application and while you're writing it. Um, and then after that, in terms of um, hiring, you know, professional penetration testers and then opening it up for bug bounties, you know, it's not a matter of how much money you throw at it. It's really about whether or not, um, you know, you've actually, looked at the attack surface and gone gone in depth and adequate coverage for what could possibly be attacked. So done your threat modeling and everything like that. So I don't know if that's a better answer to your question, but Scabby can give you an answer also. Actually actually mentioned threat <laughs> yeah. modeling. So so maybe that uh, that could be explained in a little bit more detail. So if you have a higher stakes uh, situation, an application that demands more attention, you just you just do uh, your threat modeling more thoroughly 
and accept um, more threats basically you just you just lower the bar of acceptance of a threat yeah and uh, something that would be negligible for a commercial application becomes an issue becomes an, a valid threat because you are thinking compliance you're thinking privacy you're thinking all this kind of stuff that you would maybe avoid thinking about in the first year of your startup you know you just you just uh, mentioned threat modeling i think it's a good uh, pivotal point where you basically can define what needs to be tested and to what uh, extent and uh, in this way uh, drive this process correctly yeah and in terms of threat modeling you know obviously protecting security protecting privacy of data you know those are the kinds of things is what would an attacker want to do what would they want to access and then you start looking for ways that you can make it very hard for the attacker to gain their objective right but um, one big thing here is that, you know, all countries, I think, are exploring the ideas of electronic voting. And, uh -huh. um, you know, it makes my heart stop when I think about it, given the state of cybersecurity. And I remember talking to a, you know, they're doing research into trying to create mobile apps for, for online voting. And I was talking to the, the, the technical people about their threat model, about their security model. And, you know, they were... They were very <laughs> earnest. You know, they were very <laughs> earnest and they had done some work, but it was like only on the standalone application, uh -huh. not on the like the ecosystem in which it's going to exist. Right. So I was starting to ask them questions like, are you doing uh, signed updates? How are you delivering those updates to the, the software? And they were like, oh, well, you know, it's it's going over HTTPS. And I was like, yes, but are the binary packages signed and they were like no but it's you know it's only going from here to here and I'm like no 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 <laughs> so your threat model is flawed thinking that that your app is only ever going to communicate with your servers that's your first assumption is wrong it's going to exist on a on you know people's phones of all different levels of security on the phone you know and everything and if you're expecting votes to be counted from these devices that are probably not secure, you're missing a huge part of your threat model, right? So they, I think organizations have to think about not just the application, but what is what are the threats in the environment in which it's going to be installed? And I think the app that you're talking about has the same issues, right? It's going to be installed on people's phones and people's phones vary. And even the, the manufacturers of operating systems of the phones they have trouble keeping up with applying patches, you know, to down-level versions of the phone. So you can imagine how complicated it's going to be for that app as it starts to try to provide, you know, regular updates. I'm glad you mentioned the voting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the voting because, guys, I don't know whether you are aware. We had already two test drive votes. It's still just uh, collecting opinions, so it's more of a questionnaire, not actual online vote but it's still protected by qualified signatures uh, and the first one was about uh, a couple of them were about what's the next uh, postal stamp uh, the post office needs to issue regarding the all, all the word topic but there was one serious one uh, collecting opinions of the public about whether Ukrainians should be allowed to carry firearms and it's not like voting yet, but still it affects whether the draft law enters the Rada, enters the parliament, and at what speed. You know, so it's 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 kind of kind of voting. <laughs> it affects the political process. So the stakes are raising high, and I think one day they will uh, they they will get there. We will actually have some online voting. Yeah, so exactly. Oh. It's not only about the voting itself. It's also like polls like this that, that actually do yeah. have a tremendous effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, with Dia, it's, uh, I don't know, we were discussing okay, this a while ago. We can spend ago, another and, uh, hour on that, but, but let's maybe yeah, get exactly. to another point. <laughs> yeah, yeah my, my thought was that basically sometimes you just have to go with with the flow because you don't have another choice 
because I guess humanity always balances between like the risks and you know and the the benefits that they get from technology and anything else, just like we had with nuclear weapon, just like we'll have with these apps, uh, and God forbid the uh, um, the voting electronic voting that we might uh, might as well uh, have uh, pretty soon. But anyway, unfortunately, Ukrainian government and I think many governments they sometimes are uh, super happy, you know, to be. Uh, very progressive in one field, but at the same time, uh, not as much in other fields, right? So this is the app that they kind of market heavily. They want to present that it's secure, so they invest uh, time and effort into that. But there is a lot of you know critical infrastructure that they are not as interested to surface uh, vulnerabilities in, um, whether it's uh, I don't know a power plant or. Uh, you know, some website of like regional governments somewhere, you know, in suburban Ukraine or whatnot. And they would never listen. They don't even have a formal program to listen to reports about vulnerability in, in this kind of uh, scenarios. Um, and so I don't know if you heard about it. In Ukraine, we have Ukrainian Cyber Alliance, which is essentially a group of a united group of few under, underground um, hacking groups in Ukraine, which kind of united uh, since 2014. And um, uh, first, they, of course, you know, uh, spent some effort uh, uh, to hack some Russian assets, but at the same time, they were focusing on trying to find vulnerabilities in Ukrainian uh, infrastructure, governments, and, and whatnot, and report them. And, of course, when they would not get a response from the government, uh, they started an initiative for responsible disclosure, where they do not do their responsible way. They do just they, they just publish the vulnerability, hoping that it will get like public attention and and uh, cause some um, some response. So basically, they went old school, right? What do you, what a lot of folks that you know did back in I don't know eighties, nineties, and and so on. You're missing so, one important yeah. detail. They do it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> the worst possible way, okay. worst possible place to do it. But just for your information, maybe uh, Facebook for Ukrainians is uh, what Twitter is for everybody else. Yeah, for better or for worse. Uh, but do you think such approach is still effective? Would you recommend you know, changing it to something else? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I absolutely think that that approach is effective. It's it's essentially the approach that we all had to take at some point or another. And here's the funny thing about it. Companies would like to call that, you know, irresponsible, right? They like to call researchers irresponsible if they drop zero day after they've warned you, right? They've warned you and warned you. They've tried to get your attention. You're not doing anything about it. So fine, we're going to release it publicly and drop drop the details. They call that irresponsible, but who's really being irresponsible? It's the ones who aren't listening, right? They're the ones with the bugs. They're the ones being irresponsible. Honestly, this is um, this was something that it used to surprise people when I worked at Microsoft that I still had the stance. <laughs> but I wrote Microsoft's policy specifically to have that stance, and I explained it the way that you know it. It was basically um, when I was at Microsoft. I wrote the policy to how do we receive bugs, how do we disclose bugs that we find, and how do we coordinate bugs that maybe we're a part of it somehow, you know, but we're one piece of it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's multi-party supply chain vulnerability disclosure. So all three of those roles we defined, and we actually defined when we would drop zero day. And the trigger for Microsoft was if we see exploitation of a bug, um, you know, that we found in somebody else's stuff, we'll drop zero day on them, that we will, you know, and everything, because you have to, you have to provide guidance to the world. Now, when individual or a group of hackers do it, it's considered like a little bit edgy or whatnot, but it's the same exact principle. They are warning the world or they are warning the affected users when the party who's supposed to be responsible doesn't take action it's up to the hackers to take action and warn the public. And yes, absolutely. It's, I believe, I believe that approach works. And um, you know, how organizations and governments can avoid that happening to them is they have to find a way to listen to these vulnerability reports and take action on them. And if they don't take action, they need to be prepared for you know, hackers to let the public know. And then they have to deal with the public, you know, not just the hackers, but the public as well. So for, for me, I think it just makes sense for organizations to start processing these reports and dealing with them like adults, you know what I mean? And if they, uh -huh. if they don't want to do the, the 
the dishes. Okay, somebody's going to show all your dirty dishes. <laughs> but what do you... We, uh, we should translate this and let everyone read in the comments. No, we, we, will, we will do it. We will do it. We point a uh, lot of people to, to this recording <laughs> in the coming months. So uh, I just wanted to clarify. I asked uh, this question a few journalists who focus on uh, the, the topic of uh, vulnerability disclosure, hacking for second general. Uh, but I finally have a chance to ask it, ask it to you because, yeah, obviously you have uh, unprecedented experience in this field. Do you remember a case of uh, a hacking collective, a hacking group, uh, running full disclosure against uh, their country's public infrastructure? Um. Well, I mean, going straight to full disclosure or attempting no, 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 no. This kind of kind of edgy, responsible slash irresponsible stuff. So first, uh, doing it privately, peer to peer, but when not finding peers to report or being not heard or being rejected, running full disclosure. Because I, the, the cases of uh, doing that uh, against the major vendors and the private companies are well described in literature, including, right? But uh, I could not find a precedent for that uh, on the private public level. So one of the most interesting governments to look at from a vulnerability disclosure perspective is the Netherlands. The mm -hmm. Dutch um, adopted the ISO standards, you know, for vulnerability disclosure for their national program very early. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going to speak to them, I think in like 2010, the standards weren't even published yet, but I was explaining like, this is coming. And they said, oh, that looks interesting. We should do that. And they, you know, they jumped on board and they formulated their own um, mm -hmm. vulnerability disclosure program. Now, to your question about trying to report things privately and get them fixed and then disclosing them publicly if they don't get fixed. Mm -hmm. um, the Dutch government has actually defended hackers who have done this against corporations that didn't respond. Mm -hmm. So talk about a progressive government. Um, one of the other cool things about the Dutch government was this was before Hack the Pentagon. Dutch government had like a private sort of like a, like not for money bug bounty, but a bug bounty where they give you like swag that you could only get. Yeah, yeah, t-shirts. Like, I hacked Dutch government and yes. I got this lousy t-shirt or something. Lousy yeah. t-shirt, exactly. So they said they had a sense of humor about it because they weren't paying money, but you could only get that t-shirt if you actually hacked the Dutch government. So um, they really had a lot of progressive ideas about it and embracing hackers. I think I think smaller countries understand that one, they need to embrace the talent in the hacker community that they have at home and mm -hmm. to go after them and try to arrest them, you know, for hacking is not going to help their national security. Right. So they are, I think a lot of smaller countries are looking for ways to support hackers and also support the mission of, you know, just like the Dutch government did of defending a hacker who tried to, to disclose, you know, and then said, well, you know, you're not, you're not doing, you're not doing your job. Um, to some corporation, and then uh, they, the hacker was basically defended um, by the principles of the, the Dutch government. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, oh, one other government, not about uh, disclosure and everything, but one other government I wanted to mention that all governments, I think, uh, have learned a lot from in terms of defending in cyberspace is Estonia. So um, Estonia, you know, they were under attack by the Russians in cyber before any of us really were aware that that was, that was going on in like such an organized way. And they've had to defend themselves um, with very little resources in terms of, oh, this is the cat, oh my God. <laughs> Did you see him try to get, he's trying to get on the keyboard and make this stop right now. This is what he's doing. <laughs> so, time's up, time's up. I know, up. he's like, that's he's Exactly, he's just letting us know like, guys, we're almost yeah. out of time. He's like, wrap it up with his tail. <laughs> he's so mad right now. Anyway, but, um. But yeah, the, the, the Estonians can really teach us all quite a bit, you know, in terms of defending against a powerful nation state and specifically Russia in cyberspace. Um, and I just wanted to make sure, okay, he jumped down, Scabby jumped down. I just wanted to make sure to mention the Estonian government in terms of their incredible um, experience in cybersecurity, especially against Russia. 
now I will throw this link to even more people because I'm a big fan uh, Dutch government does business in cybersecurity. I always uh, put them as an example because their annual reports, the cybersecurity state of affairs in, in the government and all this uh, work they do in uh, intelligence, of course, it's just, it's just self-explanatory, of course, but most people just do not know that, that these things are happening. But about Estonia, what do you think? Are we in the same position? Because they were uh, the, all this all this drama around the bronze uh, soldier and the Russian attacks as a result. Uh, they were strategically aimed at uh, the pace of Estonian digitalization because they put a lot uh, online, right? They made uh, this uh, government ID available uh, abroad for e-residents. For I'm example, an e-resident yeah. of Estonia, yeah. Same <laughs> <Totally>. here. <laughs> right. So uh, do you think we are in a similar position? Because we had this uh, progressive government that uh, put uh, a separate ministry for digitalization. Uh, and the guy who runs it is basically vice premier. So first vice premier for a second, right? So it, it's, it was articulated as a strategic, um, strategic vision of uh, this cabinet, right? So we must probably signal the same threat model, yeah, the same risk profile. So this is why we are cyber attacked like crazy. So we definitely need to learn from them because we have very similar, we have very similar histories. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, um, I've been to a, to a few different NATO events before the war and everything and NATO and cyber, they absolutely are learning from, you know, from, from, each other, but especially mm -hmm. from the Estonian experience. Um, and I think that that is that is something that we need to recognize is that just because a government is big or well-funded or has a ton of people, or even in the US government case, even if that government literally funded the research that invented the original internet, doesn't matter. You know, the state of where we are today depends on support visionary leadership you know and people actually investing in not just the cybersecurity of the government but in growing the cybersecurity population you know we need to grow more um essentially people with the skills and talents to support all the technology that society runs on now and it's not going to go backwards right we're not going to go backwards and go back to all paper you know for for all these government things <laughs> exactly um, and it wouldn't be efficient to do so. But I mean, even in things like from a military standpoint, I remember talking to, you know, the, this was the head of US Cyber Command. So basically um, the, yeah, the just, you know, looking at some of the different areas in, um, in technology that supports the military. So just navigation alone, hardly anybody knows how to navigate using paper charts anymore. Right. Mm. It's all done electronically and everything. And part of that loss is that you lose the, you know, non-technical um, fallback. Right. Yeah. But you gain so much more operational efficiency. And we just have to be able to to grow in parallel with the operational efficiency we're gaining and gain that kind of cybersecurity efficiency as well. We're just way behind in gaining the cybersecurity efficiency to keep up with the operational efficiency we need. So yeah, we're we're all in this position right now where so much of the technology has grown faster than we can secure it. And um, I just think, you know, small governments have an advantage in a lot of ways, right? You can move faster. You can make better decisions without the bureaucracy. Um, the UK government is another great example. They consolidated a lot of their cybersecurity um, under NCSC a few years ago, and the United States, you know, made CISA a few years ago, just trying to consolidate some of the cybersecurity operations and everything, even in a very large government, you know, trying to concentrate those forces to, to honestly, it's to achieve more of that nimbleness and cut out most of the bureaucracy and have like a better, you know, better cybersecurity outcome overall.
we try to not to make Skeppy uh, too mad, but uh, since we really scratched this topic by now, uh, what do you think uh, in Ukraine? Obviously, there is a lot of defensive operations going on, but also some offensive because this is a, a war after all. Uh, and basically, we want to ask, uh, what's your what's your thought on hack, hacking back? And uh, do you think this is in line with hacktivism culture? Is it ethical, you would say, um, both during the open war and also, uh, you know, since like attack on power plants and whatnot without the open kind of full scale, just kinetic war? Uh, what do you think? Well, that's a lot of questions in there. So I think- you know, oh, Sorry I think, about that, yeah. <laughs> well, I think whatever Ukrainians need to do to defend the homeland, they should do. That's my opinion, you know, and whatever that is, whatever is in your power to do. Um, and to me, that's ethical, right? It's you're defending your home. What, what, what more ethics do you need? What more reason do you need to, um, to be able to defend yourself? And I think, um, you know, in terms of going after specific targets, one thing is I know that when cyber operations are happening from, from bigger countries, right? From directed from bigger countries, a lot and 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 there's something going on that the individuals want to help out, right? And volunteer. The thing I always tell them is that look, unless you're actually part of a command, you know, and, and doing a mission, it is kind of dangerous for you to be there messing around on your own because you could actually derail the real mission, you know? So it's better if you're working, you know, as part of some, some kind of official way to go about doing these things, more so just because you don't want to interfere with the operation you're trying to help in, in that way. And so what I tell people, you know, a lot of people were saying, we want to volunteer to hack for the Ukrainians. And I was like, here's the thing, volunteer to help secure the Ukrainians, help volunteer to help you know, defend the Ukrainians, because that is not going to interfere with any of the actual tactical military cyber operations. And it's almost like I call it um, planting a victory garden for defense. You know, it's like back in World War II, the, there were lots of posters um, telling the American public, plant a victory garden. Why? Because there were food shortages, because we were at war, because there were shortages everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like a patriotic thing to plant your own food so that you weren't straining the supply chain and everything. What I think of in cybersecurity is what can the, the broad population do? Not go after some sort of uncoordinated attack like vigilante, you know, unregulated, un, uh, unregulated militia kind of activity, but actually take it to take it to a place where you are making it harder to attack the, you know, the country that's being attacked. Right. So I think that, you know, what Ukrainians point. are doing, Ukrainians should do what outsiders should do is they should help defend Ukraine is what I think. So Cyber Alliance will really like this, uh, this episode. Excellently put, really, because, Thank uh, you. Yeah. you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's very hard to convince people that are trying to make uh, impact. You know, because they want it to be very, um, they they want a shorter shorter feedback loop. You know, mm -hmm. they they do not want to invest time and patience and persistence and doing stuff that will strategically affect uh, the outcome of the war. They want they want they want to fight. You know. Well, well, now uh, but, we have very authoritative and uh, yeah. With you know, this, this uh, with this argumentation, it will be much easier for me to to argue about these things. Thank you. Yep. And uh, yeah, so we definitely don't want to, uh, you know, uh, want to make sure that your cat doesn't ho hold you hostage. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, we will be um, wrapping it up, uh, to, trying to be mindful of your time. Uh, but thank you uh, a lot for all of this. There is so much uh, incredibly insightful things that I will be going back in the recording and like re-listening and trying to make some key points. So like really, really, really appreciate um yeah, or, or everything that uh, you helped us find out. Like I said, learn from uh, from our uh, colleagues abroad. And this episode, I think, just really, really nailed it. Um, and also, just before we wrap it up, is there anything you would like to add? Or is there any message you want to uh, send to Ukrainian audience? Oh, my goodness. Um, no, I, you know, I started studying Ukrainian on Duolingo on my phone, like, you know, a few months ago. So <laughs> I was so like... Sweet. 
I was like, try and remember how to say goodbye at the end. Oh my God, my, my comms director made me practice it with her so I wouldn't embarrass myself. And here I am forgetting. No, I remember. That's what I wanted to say. That's it. It's like, bye friends. <laughs> right? So, um, and yeah. I'm just so happy to be on this podcast with you. I just want you to know, I've said no to almost every single request for me, um, especially on camera. I know you don't, you know, you don't necessarily, you have the, the thing streaming live right now, but, um, but I've said no, just because, you know, this pandemic has been hard for everybody. And I don't, I, I don't really like being on virtual. It's, I feel like it's, um, I don't know, it's draining to me in a different way than being in person, you know, I'd rather mm-hmm. give a talk to, to, you know, 10,000 people live than like one person virtually because it's awkward for me. But I just wanted to say thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you for, you know, everything that you're doing to help support, you know, Ukraine. And, and if there's anything that all of us can do, you know, we're, we're here to support. So thank you so much. And do provoci. We immensely appreciate this. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, so thank, thank you, you very much, much for Katie, for the invitation. Okay, thanks. And uh, yeah, to our listeners, I do have like one final word, like just like a reminder, please, uh, you know, the only way to support us is to support Ukraine. Uh, you can like, you know, donate to Come Back to Life, you can donate to whatever other humanitarian aid organization for Ukraine or, you know, like whatever, any other support, like, uh, like it's always welcome. And thank the you, Katie, again like, for being with us. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so Bye. much. Have a good one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Non-Name Podcast. If you liked it, hit the thumbs up on YouTube or in your favorite podcast player and share it with your friends. We encourage you to support Ukraine by donating to our Patreon or directly to fund Come Back Alive. Use the links in the description. Stay safe and help us make victory faster. Slava Ukraini!